Hey y'all, and welcome to Geek Freaks. I am Frank, and I'm joined by Jonathan. Hey, hey y'all. And Kevin this time. Hey, what's up? Uh, we have uh, Kevin on, and Jonathan of course is here. They have a brand new podcast coming out in two weeks. You guys will be able to hear about that at the end of this episode. So stick around, and you'll be getting a, uh, we'll interview them, we'll talk to them about it, and then we're going to have a short clip from their actual podcast at the end of this episode. It's going to be really cool. First, we have our question of the week. Uh, here it is. If you were an alien visiting Earth, what three things would you bring back to your planet? So UFOs are big right now. Barack came out and, and said that he knows that UFOs are real. All the stuff's getting declassified. So UFOs are real. We could just put that aside now. So now we got to figure out what are they taking with them? So Kevin, why don't you give us your three first? All right. So you got you to gotta bear with me on this. Okay. The first one I picked would be a car. Okay. Because you figure an advanced civilization that has a UFO that can fly to Earth, they probably don't have regular vehicles with wheels anymore. Yeah. That'd be super cool. Just driving around, regular old car, fancy ass place. <laughs> yeah. So like alien nostalgia? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. What kind of car like are we talking about? Are we talking like a Tesla or like an old like 57 Bel Air? What do you, what do you look at? Oh, dude, a dealer's choice. It doesn't really matter. Oh, it, whichever one catches their eye. Uh, I for would me, just it'd be bad. just like a pick. Yeah, if they take like a, Toy- a Toyota Camry. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, we have so many better cars. <laughs> it'd be funny that they would probably he, fall in love with the most like versatile one with most utility yeah. accent, you know, a Subaru or something like that. They're like, oh, man, but this, yeah, has, exactly. this has storage <laughs> compartments here. It's like cargo pants <laughs> for a dad. Oh, man. <laughs> I'd be disappointed if they were like, big hummer guys all of a sudden like oh guys those are so bad for your planet (laughs) (laughs) uh i also want i would take every tv show that i possibly could to study humans okay i I think tv is the the biggest one of the biggest outlets for humankind and how to, to get into our mind who we are what we are what we're all about many tv shows comedies uh soap operas sci-fi it doesn't matter as much as possible I have I have one season of something, or I have an, basically an, an episode of something, or whatever, uh, on mine on my list. Is there any show in particular that really rings true to you that you think would represent us good, well? I would say The Simpsons. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I'm I'm not a huge Simpsons fan, oh, but really? it. Yeah. I I was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I think we all were. Right. And it's, it's just so much variety in that, and it really speaks to who we are. I think as a society, That's at a least in America. Yeah. My last one is simply egg. Eggs are great. The most versatile food. No. I think that it would be a hit no matter what planet you take it to. Yeah. Egg. So question, do you bring Plus, the egg or do you bring a chicken? Ooh. I mean, oh then you can God. share eggs with the planet. Bring a couple of them, you can breed well, them. It's a whole thing. Now you're, now you're an alien yeah, millionaire. Show, show like our birth process too through just the simple egg process. Yeah. Mm. Oh my God, you guys are expanding this so much more than I even thought. So my, my simple <laughs> thought was that they'd take one egg, figure out how to replicate it. Oh. But why not bring a chicken, which is basically an egg replicator? Mm-hmm. Oh, that is the new Genius. name for chickens, by the way. <laughs> egg replicator. Egg replicator. <laughs> oh man, so I'm one of mine is kind of a cheat. I think it covers like half of what you guys said. I would bring a hard drive of Earth's history. Just a massive terabyte that has everything about Earth. I mean, just go get all the data in one file or one one device. Yeah. Uh, But but yeah, I mean, if if you're coming here as an alien and you want to learn about Earth, you're either planning to conquer it or come join them as allies or breed with their people or something. Um, So Earth history would be important. 
Mm-hmm. Learn about all the last one, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, because in that, it would have all you know, our big wars and stuff we had in the past. You would see what makes humans tick, what they can yeah. and can't handle. And then you would see most recent Earth history that shows our uh, weapons capabilities and stuff like that. So you'd have it all. Uh, a genetic sample, because they would probably want to know, can these people produce diseases that would affect us? Um, can That's we eat idea. them if we wanted to? You know, things That's, like that. Ooh. All kinds of good stuff. Kind of, how, how are they going to get this genetic sample? Are they going to like should have take a person? Because they're really good at abducting. Yeah, so that was going to be my third one, is just bring an ambassador. Um, not necessarily I'm going to take this person and do a bunch of experiments on them, but I'm going to yeah. learn about Earth, and I want Earth to learn about us. So I'm going to show this guy who we are, give him a bunch of information, and send him back, and hopefully they don't think he's a psychopath. And maybe <laughs> maybe they will be uh, prepared for us to return at some point, which might be what they do. I don't know. Yeah. When people get abducted and they have all kinds of weird experiences, maybe they're supposed to be coming back and like, hey, guys, these are some pretty cool homies. We should hang out with them sometime. And yeah. everybody takes it the wrong way. Space homies. Yeah. Space homies is a great idea. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's a good Homies in space. <laughs> um, here's my thing. Okay, so I'm real scared of the idea of us like electing the guy that goes with the aliens because that will be a shit show. Yeah, no, that they'd would have be to really terrible, him. right? They'd have they to probably have a better okay, but perspective than we do. You see all the people out there. Who are you taking with you to like be the ambassador for Earth? Mm. Tom Hanks. Tom <laughs> Hanks is a great choice. <laughs> right. Like, I was going to say The Rock, but you just broke it right open. It's got to be Tom Hanks. Uh, I mean, either or, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, but I just love Hanks. <laughs> So you got to pick somebody and then he's who's in the war hard drives. Yeah. <laughs> you got to pick somebody who's open minded enough to understand aliens exist and, you know, let's not try to murder or hump them all right away. Uh, but then you also got to have somebody who is influential enough to come back to Earth and say, hey, I found aliens. Check this out. So that'd be hard. You kind of want like a politician that everybody likes that doesn't exist or I don't know, the Pope, maybe the Pope. Yeah, I- I'd probably go with the rock then on that one. <laughs> I, mean, I, I like the Pope and all, but I think The Rock's got a little bit more Twitter followers than the Pope does. Uh, so when he puts out a thing saying like, hey, aliens are real, I think more people are following The Rock. Uh, Oprah. Oprah Winfrey. Bam. Boom. You got it. Yep. Send the queen. Nailed it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's go ahead and get into some news. That was a great start. Um, okay, so this is a follow-up from a conversation we had a couple weeks ago about the Pokemon cards and how crazy things are getting. Uh, Walmart and Target say they're no longer going to be selling Pokemon cards or sports trading cards. Two reasons for this. Increase in theft, and um, there's a fight that broke out in a Wisconsin parking lot over some MLB cards. Um, so they're saying, like, okay, so these like cardboard things are like really starting to become a, a hazard. Do you guys, have you guys found your Pokemon cards? I know we're all searching right now. John, did you find yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Found, they're in, I had one like little plastic container that had all my different cards for the years, and it's only uh, four inches by seven inches, something like that. But I had a lot of cards crammed in there. Um, yeah, just a little bit of everything because we used to play or trade a little everything. Um, but yeah, they were just kind of tucked away in storage. I'm glad they didn't get ruined because there's a good amount of humidity in there and stuff. But yeah, yeah, I got a little little everything. My question for you: uh, Have you have you when you found these new Pokemon cards, right? Did you give them the elevated kind of risk reward mentality? Like if you were to find a pile of cash, you're like, oh man, okay, these are really valuable now. I got to put them in a safe spot. Did you give them that now that the craze is up? I 
guess. I mean, I don't know. I'm careful with them, but I was careful with them before, you know, especially the holographic oh, okay. ones. You don't want to scratch them up or something like that. Because I think as kids, when we're collecting them and trading them and stuff, we already put that value on them. They're not just, you know, we're not wedging up the table with them or nothing like that. We'll use a, a textbook to, to support the table, not a Pokemon card yeah. because it's something of value to us. But uh, yeah, I think I think growing up, I mean, they're childhood treasure for us, uh, at least for me. I, I, I always valued them. But yeah, I mean, I can see now there's obviously more physical value to them. So yeah, I wonder how many people are like digging in their closet, find their Pokemon cards and put them in the safe. You know, I'm assuming that that's happening for quite a bit of people with all these stories going out. Yeah. yeah. Kevin, were you into Pokemon cards at all? No, I, I I wasn't really into it. I did have a binder that had, you know, like people collected basketball cards, baseball cards when I was a kid. I, I My binder was Pokemon cards. Mm-hmm. I didn't have too many of them. I think my brother and I ended up giving them to our younger brother. So he might still have them. I'm not sure. But m- my thought about this whole thing is if people are digging them out, putting them in safes, who's to say that they're going to hold their value in 10 years from now mm-hmm. and right. not just be, you know, go the way of something else, like a beanie baby that's not worth nearly as much as it was 10 15 years ago or a GameStop <laughs> <laughs> I collect GameStops <laughs> <laughs> Yeah uh it's 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 nuts out there and it's funny to think that Walmart has to like hold on put these things behind the glass case now because people are fighting in the parking lots over cards um and not just pokemon cards all the sports cards are are, are high crazy <laughs> right now uh, Magic's still kind of whatever, and then Yu-Gi-Oh has some good value to it, but not like anything like Pokemon cards. Um, I found this is so silly of me. So I bought, I kept buying stuff during the pandemic to try to keep my comic book store open, right? And so I bought like new pet, new decks of Pokemon cards and just put them in a drawer. So I found those, and then I was like, well, I was just gonna like whatever, give these to a kid or whatever, play them at some point. But now I'm like, I should probably save these and let these appreciate over ten years. And that way, you know, I could buy a new car someday with these cards. And it's a mentality that I know I didn't have just a couple months ago, even. I was like, I'm just going to get rid of these things. But now I hold them in much more value. Um, all right, let's go ahead and go into Ghost Runner 2. Now, John, you have not played Ghost Runner, right? I have not. And I'm too <laughs> bad at it to finish the damn thing. So we're talking to Kevin on this one. Kevin, have you finished and beaten Ghost Runner? No. Uh, sad story. I. Uh, I played the demo before it came out. Mm-hmm. I rushed to buy it when it came out. And by rushed, I mean, I clicked on Steam and bought it because I don't have to go anywhere to buy a yeah. digital game. <laughs> and I talked to my buddy Kyle into playing it, mm-hmm. watched him stream the whole thing, and <laughs> I've never played it since. <laughs> That's That brings up a whole good point there. Is, is streaming bringing down actual game sales? That's actually interesting. Bonjour. But I still bought the game. I didn't refund it. Oh, you haven't refunded it. Oh, okay. That's good. That's good. No, no. Uh, no, it's it. It's ahead. a great game. It's um, I describe it as Super Meat Boy meets a samurai game. It's basically rinse and repeat. Try to get through the the, the puzzle, killing enemies as quickly as you can without getting hit because it's one hit you're dead. Yeah, uh, kind of. I think Super Hot does that same sort of thing. Well, it's, a, it's an amalgam of a lot of different s- styles of games. Yeah, the sound design's great. It just looks great. Plays great. It's a it's a fantastic game. Yeah, I should play it. Uh, yeah, the thing too is like, yeah, you're right with the Super Meat Boy, but it's not like a 2D scroll or anything like that. This thing is a nice, clean 3D jumping around. Uh, what's a Mirror's Edge kind of feel? Yes, uh, really nice game. And I, I, I played just a little bit, maybe the demo even. 
and was like, this is fantastic. But I already feel that frustration building in me that I'm like, I will not give this thing the attention it needs. Um, and you saw me on God of War. So I, I can't play games that are too hard, <laughs> apparently. Um, would you be picking up the sequel by chance? Yeah, I'm going to try to not make the same mistake last time as I did last time and just play through it myself. Yeah, I have a feeling I'll play through the first one, though, before that. But yeah, the sequel, I'm definitely I'm sold already. Yeah. Uh, 505, the publisher is teaming up with the developer one more level to make the sequel. Um, yeah, there seems to be I like how it didn't seem like it was that big of a game. It was very polished, though, but it wasn't a very big game. And it had it was a huge hit right away. Everybody was picking it up. So uh, more of these indie titles that have that kind of care taken into them. I mean, this is like a half indie, really. Uh, I'm all in for. It, so I think that's great to make a sequel to that. All right, uh, DC Animation, we're, we're sticking to the animation world here, guys, real quick. Uh, Injustice. Charlton, I know you haven't played Injustice, but Kevin, have you played Injustice? I'm not a fighting game fan, but I am aware of it. Yeah, I'll break down the story real quick for you guys. Uh, so Joker tricks Superman into killing Lois Lane and destroying Metropolis with a nuclear bomb. Uh, and so he's like, look, I'm done babysitting you guys. I'm now the supreme ruler of Earth. And we're going to put some martial law on this thing and humanity will rise to the top. And so he basically takes over. A lot of the heroes agree with him. I think Wonder Woman and stuff like that all agree with him and they team up with him. Batman, on the other hand, is like freedom first. And so he kind of becomes this like rebel group. And Harley Quinn is like his right hand man. And there's like a bunch of people that join him. I think even Joker might join him, too, which is really nuts. But I'm not positive on that one. Um, I know he's in the game. They made it to make it was such a popular video game. They have two of those now. They ended up making a comic book series for it. Well, now they're doing an animated movie for this as well. Uh, I know you haven't played that, but who would you choose? Would you choose like, look, I'll make society better, but you're going to be under Superman's rule, or would you choose Batman and try to fight against the oppressive Kryptonian? You got to go Batman in this situation, right? Like, um, yeah. Who doesn't love the underdog story? <laughs> who doesn't love fair? I Typically with Batman versus Superman, Superman would always win. Mm -hmm. In the the case of Batman being like a resistance fighter, uh, you got to side with him. That Yeah, that resistance fighter title on him is really cool because he is so scrappy as it is. That'd be pretty cool. Right. He's like he's the perfect person to lead people from the underground and to, to pile everybody together and go after the the unkillable Superman. Yeah. And, yeah, and then him like knocking off bosses, like, oh, we got to take out Aquaman right now and stuff like that would be pretty cool. Because he, he, oh man, I'm sold already. Yeah, he has like all these contingencies on how to kill these guys in case they turn anyways. So you know he's gonna be pulling out all the tricks. Jonathan, what side are you picking? Definitely Batman. I mean, Superman doesn't understand what humanity is, what it means, and unfortunately, it's not always pretty. Death and disease is part of humanity, so you can't just you you can't be like a robot and make everything perfect and rainbows because that's that's being a robot. That's being a slave. And, and uh, yeah, humanity's, humanity's dirty sometimes. Okay. So I agree that, I mean, like, even the game pitches that Superman's the bad guy, right? But, I mean, he's generally like a all-is-good guy. So if he thinks this is the best bet, you kind of got to see his side a little bit. And, I mean, if he can stop all the wars and everything like that, if, you know, I, you know, it's not terrible. Uh, I, I'm always kind of that kind of guy that's like, you know, yeah, I'm a big Rebel Alliance fan, trust me. But, I mean, there's a lot of stability that the Empire brought in Star Wars. <laughs> and kind of have that vibe from Superman in this, too. It's like, yeah, but he's bringing a lot of stability to an, uh, a chaotic world. It's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah. What do you lose along the way, though? 
And it's a hard line to draw between yeah. preserving life and preserving humanity. They're two different things. If people, if you I make see. sure everybody lives, you know, that's, that's one type of future like the matrix. But if you make sure, you know, everybody has the freedom to live as human beings, that's a pretty grimy world, but we need to be somewhere in between there. You know what? And I've already said on this podcast a few weeks ago that I would totally be happy to stay in the Matrix. So I think True. we're starting to we're starting to figure out who I am as a person. I think, I think so. <laughs> it's not great. Also talking about this, I'm thinking, how awesome would this be? I'm assuming this is in the future at some point. Batman yeah. gets to the point that he has Stark technology and can completely. I mean, I imagine him fighting Superman not just with his gadgets that he built in a shed, but with complete Tony Stark armor and stuff with his uh, scrappy tech and stuff or ability. Yeah. That'd be dope. Uh, I, you know, again, I keep telling you, we need to go to the comic book shop together so we can put together a pull list for you. Yeah. Uh, in the Batman comic books, there's a character named um, Batwing. It's actually the character's name. Mm. And he is basically uh, a fully suited, like, Iron Man suit Batman. Nice. That, that's part of the Bat family. And he's he's awesome. He's like, he has, like, a big Bat symbol and the outside of it all lights up. Is it's it all? Dope. Is he blue and black? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen, I've seen him on a cover or two. Yeah. There's like a yellow and gray version of him too. That's pretty cool. Nice. Uh, some of the other uh, animated movies that were announced is we have Batman: uh, The Long Halloween Part Two. That's the that's announced, but the first one's not released until June twenty second. These are based off the ninety six comic book series run. Uh, they actually talked about making this a movie for a while, but it's Batman in his younger days uh, hunting down a serial killer um, named Holiday who kills somebody each month on a holiday. And it's October, so he knows that the serial killer is going to kill somebody on the 31st, and so he's rushing to like solve the crime. The best thing about this thing is it's actually a detective story hmm. about Batman, and we don't have enough of those, right? I think we should get more detective stories for Batman. Uh, next is My Adventures of Superman. This thing is kind of like mostly focused on Clark Kent, uh, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen as three young reporters in Metropolis trying to get uh, started. Uh, so don't expect too many Superman stuff. You know, it's mostly just the kids uh, doing things. They're all young. Uh, and then with the last one we want to make sure to spotlight is Batman Cape Crusaders. This is the one I'm most excited for. Uh, Batman, the animated series creator, Bruce Timm, who's a freaking genius, returns to bring Batman back to the small screen. We only have a poster so far, but it definitely shows off like Tim's style. So, but the Batman animated series was fantastic. The Everything's iconic from it. The stories were deep. Do you guys remember any particular story or villain that really stood out from those the 90s Batman animated series? I know I watched it, but I don't think I absorbed it. I was just watching it as something to look at when I was a kid, I think. I Yeah. Yeah, I I don't remember any of it except for Bruce Wayne's voice. That's the thing that sticks in my head about that show. The wonderful Kevin Conroy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a specific uh story that I remember so much. Uh but I know of Batman's villains, my favorite character has always been Penguin. Uh I know the Joker's great. Heath Ledger's Joker was phenomenal and the recent Joker uh with Joaquin Phoenix. But aside from how amazing Joker is, uh I like Penguin cuz he doesn't just fight Batman. He more so fights uh Bruce Wayne. He yeah. manipulates the political world completely. In plain sight, he is doing everything by the book that people can see and gets away with it. And then it's just in the dark of night that he he really trips himself up by trying to do, you know, dirty deals in the dark. And Batman can find him then and, you know, straighten him out. But uh, the fact that he plays in the light and dark is pretty cool. Yeah. And and he has he does a good job of being like the 
almost the likable politi- politician or or the likable. Oftentimes he's just a mob boss, mm-hmm. but he also is kind of more. He's more likable than Falcone and stuff like that. Yeah. Like he's less of the shadows there. But then at night you're seeing that he's stealing kids. Yeah. You, <laughs> so you, we're talking. We're talking Batman too a lot right now. But yeah, yeah. because of his uh, mutation too, you you do sympathize with him a little bit. You're like, well, he's he's a bad guy, but I kind of want him to do good for a bad guy. <laughs> but in the end, yeah, he still has to stop. Yeah, and he came from like a rich family that's kind of collapsed, which the Gotham show did a really good job with that. Yeah. Where the the uh, Copperpot family used to be, you know, this real wealthy family, and he's kind of on the verge of collapse and stuff. That is actually a good pick. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite from the animated series, it actually, it kind of redefined the character for me, and for, the, I'm sorry, for the DC universe, really, is Mr. Freeze. Mm-hmm. Because that's where we got the story, because before then, it was just like, a guy, Arnold Schwarzenegger, essentially. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger type character where he's like, yeah. I've got you on ice. You know, it was that kind of thing. <laughs> but in the animated series, they were like, well, let's see why he's all about being frozen. And they really explored his wife and her condition and how he's fighting to find a cure for her. Mm-hmm. It's a tragic love story. Uh, it, it's why I think he should have his own movie, much like Joker has his own movie. Um, I would say Mr. Freeze has got to be my favorite from there. And, and that's the thing with Bruce Timm is he'll always do these things where... Um, you're you watching the show, you're watching the show and you're like, okay, that's Clayface. It's easy to not like Clayface. But then you're like, oh, but he wasn't, he didn't want to be a villain. He actually was an actor. And now he's always trying to portray somebody, but he can't keep his shape very well. And it's like, they make you feel so bad for the villain. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, uh, I'm so excited for them to bring back some more of these, these type Batmans, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's at its best. And I hope DC does continue to make uh, movies like that Joker that are real, like, making you yeah. feel bad for the villain and give you a totally different perspective because we don't see that anywhere else, I don't think. Yeah. And then, I, John, you didn't mention, I got to say it before we leave this. Yeah. The Joker from the animated series is Mark Hamill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a no. given, right? <laughs> right. I just want to make sure everybody's aware that we do agree that that is an amazing Joker and, in my opinion, the best one. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, and he's going to be, uh, guys, he's going to be playing Skeletor in the new He-Man show. Mm. Oh, I cannot wait. All right, uh, PlayStation has put a patent out there to bring esports gambling in. This is some controversial stuff, guys. So uh, the system would allow you to bet with money, cryptocurrency, uh, uh, NFT rights, and in-game items. Um, potentially, what this is, it's it's a it's going to be a new UI that would be on your PlayStation. And this is just a patent, so we don't know for sure if it's going to land. Um, they will let you bet on an Overwatch match or whatever Fortnite match, or whatever. Uh, do you guys think that there should be Gambling and esports. I don't like gambling in general. Um, so I don't. I I'd be against it. I mean, there's just no nobody wins except the the host. There's just no. Oh yeah, I won a ten million dollar jackpot. Yeah, but the people that are doing it got six hundred million dollars that year. So who's really making the money? Everybody's pitching in to put it all in one big pot, and the the people that are running the show just make all the profit. That's why casinos are as beautiful as they are. Um, so yeah, I'm yeah. I'm against gambling. I think it's just a way to pick the pocket of the dumb and poor. Kevin, what are your thoughts on gambling in esports? And then, do you think that the big companies like PlayStation and Xbox should be getting involved in it? So I, I am against gambling as a concept, but there's so much gambling in live action sports like football, basketball. There's so much gambling in actual sports. I think gambling in esports would be a step toward legitimizing it even more than it already has been over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Not saying that I'm for it. I, there's a lot of eth- ethical ramifications of it. And yeah, um, as far as the the big console companies getting involved, that's that's where we start getting into some, <laughs> some really deep ethical stuff there. Uh, 
conflicts of interest with them running stuff while making the stuff that you're gambling on. It's, it's too many ways to to throw the curve, if you know what I mean. Yeah. To to put everything in, and the house always wins. But oh man, it's just there's too many possibilities for people to take advantage of that if they're both running it, making it, and making all the money from it. There, there's also a level of like like with any gambling there's a lot of people that has to deal with it but with the technology that's in this there's a lot of lot more people that could sit there and affect things and it almost feels like it's a future episode of geek freaks we're going to be talking about some guy that works for playstation that had money on overwatch and decided to like oh i mean you know what i'm gonna make it to where the damage for these guys like he tweaks it somehow a little bit or he puts a code in that tweaks things a little bit it seems a little bit easier in esports than it would be in say football where you'd have to actually go out there and like take someone's knees out. Yeah, it'd have to be regulated. Like when you hear of somebody throwing a boxing match in order to have somebody win big, it's it, it'd have to be regulated. Which we get into a whole other discussion there that could go on forever. So right. I'm gonna avoid that. But some sort of third party regulators make sure things legit. It, yeah, and then we run into the problem of addiction because right because gambling there's obviously you know see, you see it all the time when you go to the casinos which I think is funny. Um, poster saying like, if you have a gambling problem, call these numbers, and then the slot machines are this way. Um, do you think these companies should keep that in mind and somehow put in a thing that would make it to where you can't gamble X amount or something like that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think if we do put regulations and everything involved, then that that should be part of it. Is that this um, like trying to prevent it from ruining people's lives uh, should be the responsibility of the host of whoever's you know providing it. Because uh, it's it's true. I mean, people could spend a lot of people will take their paycheck at the end of the week as long as their rent is paid. And they have food in the fridge. They'll go to the casino and spend the whole check. And it's sad. Yeah. Their family, you know, would like new clothes or to maybe once a year go on a vacation or have something. But, you know, they, they're addicted. They every penny they got. Sometimes they won't even pay rent. But, you know, every every penny they got, they'll, they'll go spend. And what do they get out of it? They get a temporary high. I get there's there's the adrenaline and excitement from playing at a slot machine or whatever, but you know, it's short-lived and then your family's without that income. So uh, we just don't want to see that expand into a world that we like so much, at least I don't. So I'm hoping that uh, they do put strict regulations. And if it's just like uh, game credits, if you can't use physical money for it, that would be fantastic. If you could gamble with gold from WoW, like you do in the auction house, that's awesome. But if you yeah. are gambling with your actual paycheck, I would be, you know, totally okay with not having that. Very against it. Yeah. Um, so, Kevin, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Should, what, should they address the addiction part of it at all? Yeah, I, they definitely should. I mean, they should be doing that with loot boxes right now, in my opinion. Nice. Uh, loot boxes are gambling, and it's already in most games. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, they should definitely have disclaimers and stuff. Anything that somebody could become addicted to and could ruin their life doing, especially when it's a, a mental addiction, it definitely should have disclaimers, of course. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's going to be coming in with the system that they're talking about is an AI that's learning as, as the games are going on so that you'll have two different versions of betting. You can bet beforehand, say that uh, San Francisco Shock's going to beat Dallas Fuel on this game. But then while the game's going on, it'll it'll start to learn the performance of the different players. And then it's saying like, oh, this guy's doing better than that guy. And this guy's got, you know, he's, he's more accurate today than he normally is. 
and it'll create uh, mid-game bets too. Do you think that kind of AI learning being added into games for gambling could be moved over to physical sports too? Like if we had something that was tracking how uh, Dak Prescott's throwing today? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm surprised it isn't already if it's a possibility because there's just so much money to be had in regular sports gambling. It's just ridiculous how much, you know, how much uh, money changes hands. So, and there's, there's people, I, I have coworkers that have, um, I, I don't know what you call it, but a, a person who studies all the players for them. They, they study oh, them wow. and they give them suggestions just like, you know, the real estate or investors do. Um, you have a person who, who does all the research and tells you, oh yeah, bet on this game, bet on that game, bet on this player, you know, put this one on your roster or whatever. And they do, and they usually make decent money following his, uh, recommendations. But uh, yeah, the fact that if they, if you could have an actual AI, a program that's doing that that processing for you and pretty much doesn't fail because it's a program, um, that would be so much more you know effective. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Kevin, what do you think about AI uh, influencing betting in physical sports? And also, what is the last time you bet on a physical sport? I've never bet on a physical sport. Um, I do see the benefit to having an AI component to that. But once again, it's so many things to be taken advantage of with AI learning. And honestly, if it's even being talked about in esports, I am I'm I'm shocked that it's not something that's widely used in. I'm sure it's used to some extent in real life sports gambling, but I'm kind of shocked that it's not a big thing already. It probably will be soon because I know the AWS thing, the uh, Amazon's um, AI that they're working on, is used in football a lot to to analyze uh, players before games to like understand like, oh, you know what, this guy's gonna always lean to the left when he tries to go into the end zone, stuff like that. So they're right there at the verge, and they probably are using it behind the scenes. Um, I, the last time I bet on a game or bet on any physical sport was um, the last McGregor fight, and I like those prop bets, the ones that. Are, so I bet on like, would he fall on his ass? Would, um, would he get two punches before the one? You know, like all, I like all the fun, weird stuff. Um, and it just kind of spices up the viewing. But then I leave the casino and I don't come back for another half a year. So it's hard to imagine having that casino in my house on a sport that I watch all the time, like Overwatch. That's that's going to be tempting. That will be tempting when that comes around. There's no doubt. Especially when you watch it so much to where you feel like you're an expert. You're like, oh, yeah, I know this guy's going to kill it this time. And he does. Oh, I know this team's going to win this time. And they do. And you're like, well, man, if I put 100 bucks on that, I'd have, you know, 500 bucks right now. What am I doing? Why don't I just bet? But that's where the addiction starts. And then you win, you win, you win, and you lose. And then there goes however much money, you know, you were trying to put into it. So, yeah, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, it is. All right. Our next topic here is XP boost coming to uh, New World. So... I'm excited to talk to you guys because I just kind of want to get our stance here first. I am a single guy who has some ample time to throw in an MMO. And I like that that immersion into a, a new world. But both of you guys are married. Jonathan, you got a new kid. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Kevin, you've got this job that takes up a lot of your time. So you guys are both very j- uh, busy guys. Uh, do you play games that have like, you know, back in the day when you bought a game, when Skyrim came out, it comes with 200 hours of gameplay. Oh, shit. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. Is that a selling point to you anymore, Kevin? No, definitely not. I love short games. If I'm going to play a story-driven game, 
six to 12 hours is perfect for me. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I love roguelikes because you can play for 45 minutes. And then if you have to leave and not save, you can start over anyway. Uh, too big of games are just not worth it to me. Yeah, Not worth the time investment. Uh, yeah. And Kyle, I think, was like a big open worlds take all my time kind of game guy. If I remember correctly back in the day. Um, Jonathan, what about you? Are you into those big games at all? No, I I used to, but now it's like he's saying, I just don't have the time to really invest into it. So it's such a daunting task to play like Skyrim. I started playing it and I only got a few hours in or maybe six hours in. And then it's like, I'm never going to finish this game. Not in my lifetime when I can only play 45 minutes at a time. So it's just like, you know, better to play something you can get in and splash around and have fun in a sandbox or something and, and not be committed to trying to finish a huge story. Yeah. Six hours in Skyrim, you're like barely in the first town you meet. It takes a while to just get up, get out to that part. Uh, yeah. So according to these leaked patch notes, uh, it revealed that there's going to be a cosmetic shop, you know, a cash shop that has cosmetic items and an XP boost. Uh, for Amazon's new world. Um, so the the point of an XP boost is, as you're you know doing tasks or killing creatures, you get XP, makes you level up, yada yada yada. Um. The XP boost makes it all faster because you're getting additional XP from the things you kill. So it shortens the game for you. Uh, Amazon's claiming this is to make sure that people can play the game at a pretty good pace. Hardcore MMO players are like, well, that's nonsense. It's actually just cheapening the game for those who play the game, the proper XP. So this is a quote from Amazon. Uh, We may sell quality of life uh, items or boosts that help players improve their time spent leveling up their characters and trade skill experiences, so they could probably use it for their professions too. What are your guys' thoughts on XP boosts? Do you think that they should be added to the game, or any kind of boost, really? Or, if you're not able to put that time into an MMO, you don't play the MMO? Yeah, I think if you can't put time into it, don't play it. This this sounds, though I haven't played a game where it has like two different levels of XP that I can that I know of, this reminds me of playing Minecraft. We play, though it's yeah not very well aligned, but um, I know a lot of people that play uh, creative mode and I only play survival mode. And to me, creative mode, it ruins the game. If I go into creative mode yeah. even for 20 minutes and all of a sudden I could have an entire wall of diamond just at the click of a button, it's like, well, what's the point of playing this at all then? I spent hours just trying to get six pieces of diamond. And so yeah. the fact that somebody else could be playing the same game as me with an XP boost and they're doing it faster and easier. And here I know I'm doing it the hard way and I'm electing to do it the hard way. I think that kind of demeans it a little bit, makes it less valuable. I'd rather everyone be on an equal playing field, I think. Kevin, have you ever um, boosted your XP? I know like Assassin's Creed has it in and stuff like that. Have you ever purchased anything like that in the shop? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, Assassin's Creed I probably wasn't a good example. <laughs> right, yeah, specifically because of Assassin's Creed. But yeah, even... In games like, uh, I think Shadow of War was like the first big one that came out that had X- single player games, I should say, yep. that had XP boosts. Um, it People were under the impression, it's probably true at the time, that they were lengthening the grind of the game to either make people feel the urge to buy those XP boosts or just to keep playing the game for a longer period of time until they took those XP boosts out of their microtransaction shop or got rid of the microtransaction shop altogether and they cut the grind back yeah um i think in a game if you're selling an xp boost you are saying your game's not worth playing that if if you're paying additional money 
to skip portions of the game, then you're saying that your game is not worth playing in its entirety, which is a bad way to view your own product, in my opinion. Yeah, that's true. I like I like that outlook on it, too. And then you're right with uh, Shadow of War, Shadow of Mordor, all those. Uh, but Shadow of War had a, had a micro shop and they ended up pulling it out completely to the game because of the backlash, um, which is something that gamers need to keep in mind that like, look, you guys can influence things if you guys are vocal, um, which is important, especially for our next topic. Um, yeah, I I'm not a fan of it, again, as, as a big MMO player, but I do understand for those who have like work or whatever, that they're trying to find a way to get around the game quicker. Um, many players look at it as a pay to win. Have you guys heard that term before? Pay to win? Yeah. 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 Pretty classic. Um, so the idea is that, uh, well, you know, you could play the game hard or you could pay to get an advantage. One of the most famous situations was, was uh, Lord of the Rings online where you could actually pay for gear and, you know, then stories came out about like, oh, well then you could just be soloing these, these raid content, this group content and, and not really need a group at all. Uh, the, the population and the stigma or like, because of the bad stigma, the population for Lord of the Rings dropped pretty hard. Uh, it's actually still active. I saw. I was looking it up, and it's actually still an active game, but probably on one small server in some dude's basement. Uh, and the pay-to-win became a title that people wanted to avoid. And so if pay-to-win gets its stink on Amazon's new game, when Amazon is riding hard on this game, they look because this is going to be their first game coming out, it could collapse the entire Amazon gaming studio. Uh, so they try to avoid that. They came out and said, like, this is their quote. Uh, we're committed to keeping competitive system fair and balanced for all customers and purchases will not provide competitive edge over another player who chooses to not purchase the additional items. The problem is with an MMO at the end, you guys are all trying to, you know, complete tasks together. So if somebody's able to get there before me, then they are able to collect gear before I can and they have an advantage over me. Do you think boosting your character gives you an advantage over another player? What do you think, John? Yeah, I think I think it does. And I think if they want to make a fast version and a slow version of the game, it shouldn't be uh, an XP boost thing. Your mainstream, just focus on the goal uh, gameplay, should be the fastest you know, XP earning you can do. And then if you want a more grindy game, have more offshoots, more side stories you can play and stuff like that, yeah. where you get the cosmetic gear for free because you spent six hours conquering this raid or, or you know, killing 10,000 pigs or whatever. Um, and you get more of that cosmetic stuff that other people can just pay for and skip that part if they want to. But if you want the more gameplay, you know, you have option to, to, to do it. Yeah. I like, I like that idea of like, look, the main story mission will get you the end game, but if, even if it's good, better gear or whatever, but if you do the side quest, that's where you really like, Oh, I love this world world. I want to be in it. It's like getting the platinum trophies on a PlayStation game. You don't need to do that. But if you like the game enough, like I do for the Spider-Man games, you go back and you try to get those platinum trophies. Mm-hmm. So my thoughts on this are that if you're trying to make a game to appeal to people that have the time and people that don't have the time to get as many players as possible, instead of adding XP boosts that are optional, that cost extra money, that could lead to a a pay to win Mm -hmm. game. I'm not a genius here. I'm not a game designer. Think of a new way to level. Think of a new way to play the game i think of something new do something better make a better game you know Uh, make something that's appealing to more people if that's what you want to do if you're making an mmo you're typically not going for people that have less time to spend you're going for people that'll get sucked into a game that got 40 hours a week that they can spend on a game which is fine i don't mean to be exclusionary about it Mm -hmm. 
but make the game that you're trying to make. And if you, it, if you have to add microtransactions in it to get other people to play it, make a different type of game or yeah. expand on the genre, do something different with it. Yeah, you're right there. It feels like there's a lot less uh, innovations going on in this genre. It's much more about like, well, we'll just use cash Shop to patch things up. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not good for us. And I'm sure it fills their coffers, but it doesn't help us out at all. Uh, a lot of this is because the audience is getting older. They all have more responsibilities. Um, back in the day, you know, you, you're talking about, okay, so if you have one player that started World of Warcraft in the beginning, they were likely in high school, they had homework, and then they could just dump the rest of their day into World of Warcraft. And the parents are happy because they weren't complaining. And then that same player it now has their own kids and a job and everything like that. So they have more money to put into something, but far less time. So I feel like the MMO genre their player base in particular is uh, older than the normal gamers. Like if you think of like a Fortnite player or something like that. So I think just how, how does an MMO appeal to a younger audience? They can start capturing those guys with the free time again. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think, I think you have to like the younger generation, they can't sit through a full movie anymore. It seems like, uh, now we have things like TikTok where you get little glimpses of entertainment for brief periods of time and you move on. So I think it's hard to get a, a, kid maybe i'm wrong but i think it's hard to get them to sit down and be dedicated to a long-term game for long periods of time um it's just not as as appealing so i think you know first integrating your streaming like they're working on and stuff like that um but just making it a game where you could play in just tiny little sample pieces instead of such a, a long dedicated game and mobile gaming is is unfortunately becoming so huge that I think MMOs <laughs> integrating into a mobile game would really uh, bring in the younger generation. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, do you have any, any ideas on how they could uh, appeal to the younger audience? I mean, uh, the only things that I could I could think of are fast paced, short burst gameplay yeah. with uh, lots of dopamine mm-hmm. <laughs> getting right. injected you know just a, a fast rewards all the time uh and something that you don't have to play all the time yeah yeah the thing i was kind of thinking of is is uh and uh using the mmo part as the overworld um you know if you're thinking of like the games that have overworlds i'm thinking of like kirby or whatever spiral even god of war technically has an overworld um as you're going into like helheim and stuff uh use the overworld as the MMO part and then like, Hey, you team up and then you guys go and do a, a section. I actually God of war does it quite well. Really. If you were to make a God of war MMO and like, Hey, let's all go to Helheim together. Clear that. All right. Timmy's got to go, you know, Jake's got to go. And then I'm going to hang out in the overworld and, and spend more time out there. Um, I think that's your best bet because then you have the short burst game and it's kind of like how they do dungeons, but actually make it like it's an exploring level. So the zone is in there too. Um, it's tough. It might just be a dying genre, although there are a lot of companies that are currently developing the game uh, MMOs right now because they feel like the wave is coming back. And it'll be interesting to see uh, games in general for the aging player base. I kind of feel like we're going to get some more of these like Minecraft type games. Like for me, when I have a stressful day, and it's just tough. Minecraft's great because I'll like hop in there. I'll just kind of you know, shut my brain off for a little bit and go hit some trees and just build. And it's nice, casual music. How else are games going to change with an aging audience, John? Um, I think they have to be less commitment. Like we used to play WoW and you have to get, or I used to, uh, you have to get into a raid. So you have to be on every day, every certain time or whatever. Um, so something like you're saying, Minecraft is, is really flexible. You can just get on for 
a short period and not be committed. Uh, but also adding the social aspect that that uh, you know you see in in MMOs and stuff, but adding that into other games to where you're not there just to grind and just to get points and stuff like that. You're there to BS with your homies while you're playing too, because right. you know now that you're an adult and you got kids and responsibilities, your social life is nothing but the time that you do get on the computer. So, well, I think we've kind of seen this happen before. Um... 2D games were dying for a while. Yeah. And all of a sudden, one new indie game came out that was a 2D game. And then we had the indie game resurgence. I, I think that there will always be games that are for specific audiences. I just think the, the vast majority of games will be always toward a younger audience. I don't have an answer to how to make a game specifically for an aging player base. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that that will always exist as long as there is a want for it in some form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some of these shorter, really thick, like Resident Evil Village, everybody's talking about how great this is, right? The game's like eight hours long, which in my opinion is, is quite short for a $60 game. Well, I, I don't even know what the price is on that thing anymore nowadays. Um, but people are excited for it. And I think the key is because everybody's talking about the story and the characters and the really cool design. Um, I think that's it. Hit, hit a shorter time and put in a lot of good story because I mean if I could watch if I could binge a Netflix for the same amount of time and be excited you know it's kind of the same effort really um, and and then to speed things up too in this uh, easy mode again with God of War I'm really high on God of War right now guys so it's kind of like <laughs> in my brain all the time uh, Ragnarok coming out soon hopefully but I, I knocked it down to easy mode I wasn't a fan of doing that in the beginning because I was like oh my god I'm such a loser but I I then liked the game. I wasn't liking the game as much until I put it in an easy mode and I was just like, tell me more stories, head that's hanging off my hip. Like, I just was so into it and uh, it's because I knocked it down to easy mode and I went through the game at a pretty good clip and um, man, it's just a stunning game and that's, I, then I got to enjoy the game and that's, it's fine and that, that's a good way to get through the game quicker too for those of you guys who have the busy lives. Yeah. All right, uh, this next one I don't think we're going to have too much to say about, but <laughs> uh, I do want to mention, so we're going to be talking about Ubisoft. There was an article that came out. Uh, the first article came out on uh, a French uh, newspaper called La Telegram. I'm pretty sure I just nailed that. Um, and then it was picked up here in the in the States by GameIndustry.biz. If you guys are not familiar with GameIndustry.biz, uh, they're kind of like the deadline, but for video games. So they're uh, kind of an insider news, news or organization that does a lot of press releases and stuff like that. Really great company. Check them out. This article is done by uh, Maria D'Alessandri. She's the one that picked the story up. So uh, what, what's coming out is Ubisoft has reportedly made minimal changes following abuse allegations. These are from last year. So um, Ubisoft last year, I think it was like in May, June, July, around that area. Uh, it came out. There was all kinds of uh, allegations of abuse. Uh, the number that came out there, which sounds so high, is about 25% of employees have been affected by harassment. 25% of your employees and your freaking Ubisoft are huge. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, uh, during the investigation, they found out they actually did very little. They promised to do all these changes and stuff. They actually did very little. And I'm going to go over a couple of the changes. There's some real French names here, so just keep in mind that. Um, and, and we love our French listeners, by the way. I'm not saying anything wrong with that. I just like my tongue's not down for it. So director of HR, Cecile Cornet, uh, who uh, stepped down following the accusations alongside other Ubisoft executives in July 2020, has only just now left the company. And that's actually, that's just one example that's happened left and right. The HR department in particular is supposed to be cleaned out because these allegations were brought to HR and HR was just like, you're fine. Don't worry about it. That was basically the response, right? 
a lot of the uh, staff that was supposed to be uh, removed are still there. Um, some of the men that were at the heart of the of the situation, such as Florent Kalstanarak, uh, who heads the Ubisoft-owned Nadio, uh, he was accused by dozens of people. He's still there. Um, in Canada, there, which is one of the biggest Ubisoft studios, the Montreal studio, which does uh, the Assassin's Creed, uh, they said that essentially nothing has changed since the appointment of Christo, uh, Christophe Durenis, which is the cousin of Yves uh, Guillemot. He's the one that like runs the entire company. Um, and matter of fact, I didn't put it in the notes here, but they've said that there's actually been more harassment since he's taken over. More harassment. So 20,000 members of the staff are supposed to be, or, ha- or have received training, and then there's supposed to be additional training for the executives, which there should be. That kind of, I just wanted to kind of spill everything out, and then we're going to discuss this. Kevin, how can Ubisoft fix this? What are they going to do? I think they're beyond help right now. Yeah. That sounds almost a little too harsh, but they've had ample time. Uh, Yves Jumeau, the the CEO, put out a video, like I think three months after everything came out into the limelight and uh, Bloomberg did their huge article on it. Mm -hmm. Um, They've had plenty of time to actually do change to actually make change within their company and in the industry for the better they haven't i think they can go fuck off yeah it almost feels like you guys got to reform at this point as much as i love your guys's games you need to scratch the project make the montreal studio its own thing divide up the studios put in completely new staff um at the at the top end you know a completely new head office because i mean their their attitude to this is so frustrating the way that they're just not even addressing it sometimes. They're like, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll worry about HR later on. And most of the HR is still sitting there. <laughs> it's just so frustrating, that, especially since it was H- HR was a big problem with this, because that's supposed to be your safe haven. And that was also a place of harassment. This is so this is like way sad. You don't want to hear about a single person being harassed at work, especially sexual harassment. They have to go to work every day. They're trying to make ends meet to support their family or whatever. And they're afraid that when they go to work that someone's going to, you know, say something or whatever, make them uncomfortable. That's not cool. 25% of your company and you don't slam on the brakes and turn around. I think, like Kevin said, they're too far gone. This has been going on for a long time. I don't think if if the players see this and recognize it for what it is, then I, I don't think they can come back from that. I don't think reputation can be fixed from such a severe failure on their end. I think the best thing they could do is try to sell. I mean, it sounds crazy, but to, if they are bought out by some other company and their name changes and, you know, a big chunk of staff changes and restructured and all that stuff, then, you know, this, the stigma will kind of go away with the name, hopefully. But yeah. if they stay where they're at and they keep making promises of, you know, we're going to get rid of that one guy or whatever. And you got to remember, these are allegations. There's hopefully an investigation going on that maybe isn't resolved yet, but this should have been done a lot faster a long time ago. Uh, as for the allegations, a lot of this has been proven. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's now, such a high point. quantity of people, 25% of a huge corporate, you know, huge yeah. company. There's, there's like emails and everything to back everything up, which is, yeah. it's a real, um, I think it was, is it Bloomberg at the time? Uh, yeah, it might've been Bloomberg, but it might've been Kotaku at the time that it released it too. Um, I honestly, I would get the, I can't ever say the name right, but I always say it's Goulamont, you know, the family that basically founded Ubisoft. You have to strip that entire family from this company if you want to save it at all. They have, they, they are, you know, hey, the captain goes down with the ship and they have constantly been an issue. 
uh, from some of the stuff that they have said in the past and uh, the way they're handling this. If if they really wanted a way to set a new tone for the company, you have to remove that family. Mm-hmm. They are so toxic and dated and from a bygone era of when everything was on floppy drives and uh, women were objects in the workplace. These people need to be removed and then God, give the give the because they has they have a union, but it's so crippled in this company, um, and all they can do is just try to shed light on things. They do not actually have any kind of the employees. I, I'm telling you guys as much as I hate to see you know you guys not get paid for a while, but you probably have to go on strike here pretty soon until things are really redone from the top down. Uh, as a gamer, Kevin, how do we how do we help the employees in the situation as a, a gamer? spread their stories on social media um that believe them i mean that's you can't really say boycott them because then their work doesn't get out in the public uh i've personally boycotted ubisoft for a lot of reasons up until immortals phoenix rising which is a great game by the way yeah um yeah just listen to them share their stories believe what they say yeah yeah, it's a- support them financially if they start doing something on their own. Track them as they move to new con- companies too, and really kind of shout out them as they do that too. Because that's one thing that we'll see. With, we see with Blizzard a lot. Uh, they move to other companies because the pay's better. Track them and see where they're going, and support their new endeavors to to really support them as they move. Because that's such a risky move to change companies in the gaming world. There's a lot oh, of people yeah. out there. Uh, John, can you think of any other way we could support these employees in these times? No, you guys hit it on the head. I mean, just like. Like Kevin's saying, explain their story, make sure everyone's aware of, of what's going on there. And yeah, if, if they if they start a, a movement or if they go on strike or whatever, then support them now. But like you're saying, if we don't buy their games, you know, they're they're gonna struggle too. So we don't wanna necessarily stop for that. But uh yeah, yeah. just spread the word. So what we're gonna do uh here at Geek Freaks, like I was like, man, I don't even want to buy Far Cry six after this, and I'm so excited for Far Cry six, guys. But I'm like, after reading some of these allegations and, and what's been done, I'm like, I don't even want to buy this. But you're right, Kevin. You, It's still the money that's going to go to the guys, uh, to the to the team that's actually making the game. So it's really tough on that one. But when we do the review for that game, we're going to mention this again. And anytime we do a Ubisoft review until things are fixed, we're going to make sure to talk about Ubisoft first and then the game that they made so that we can kind of keep this thing fresh. Uh, for this particular segment, we're going to make sure to put this on our YouTube channel and we're going to boost it on YouTube. You guys can like sell, you, know, you basically buy ads and whatever. So we're going to boost this particular segment of the podcast on our U- the YouTube channel, try to get the story out there as much as we can. Uh, share it with your friends. Tell your friends what's going on. Uh, we have a decent French audience in France. Be vocal over there, guys. I know that Ubisoft is a huge staple over there. Be vocal over there and you know across the world. When you buy the game, it's okay to like a game. And it's okay to buy a game from a company like this because, you know, you are supporting a bunch of people. But be aware of what what happened to make your game. Just being aware is so important. And take that into consideration. Uh, it, this is just a tough situation. And I, we're going to be changing gears here to a much funner thing. But I, I just wanted to, you know, really make sure we hammer home that, you know, be aware of the situation. Uh, keep them uh, honest over there on socials, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, if we need to, you got to boycott the games, but we'll see what happens. And they got Far Cry 6 coming out. We'll see how this affects it. All right. Let's get into a better, better place now. We're moving on to talking about a brand new podcast coming to the Geek Freaks feed. 
right, guys. So we have a brand new podcast coming to the track uh, to the Kingbird's <laughs> feed. Uh, it'll be coming out in two weeks from the release of this podcast. Uh, it is going to be called Trek Freaks. Now, it is going to be hosted by the wonderful Jonathan and Kevin. So, why don't you guys, one of you guys, you guys pick, what is this going to be all about? What, what's going on with Trek Freaks? Uh, so, we've been going back and forth for a while now, as you know, trying to figure out what we want to do. We knew we want to do some kind of Star Trek uh, podcast. We want to, you know, go through and review every episode. For me, mainly, it's just because I grew up watching Voyager, loved Star Trek Voyager, and got a little taste of other stuff, but not much. Finally, I started watching other Star Treks, and I'm like, my God, I love this. I love all of them. There's so much content out there to watch, and I'm like, I'm going to watch it from the beginning, original series on, but you know, if I'm going to be watching every episode, I should document something out of it, right? Get something useful from, from the process. Um, so I'm super excited to actually go through every episode of the series. You guys are both Star Trek watchers, but let's let's hear your guys' resume. Uh, Kevin, how familiar are you with Star Trek? What's your favorite um, series? I used to say that Star Trek The Next Generation was my favorite show of all time. Yeah. I think I have to change that to Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Wow. So it's not only my favorite Trek series, but it's my favorite TV series. Uh, I've seen every episode of every Star Trek outside of the animated series. I have not seen that, and I'm really looking forward to watching that and talking about it. Yeah. Nice. Jonathan, what's what's your resume looking like? So you 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 watched Voyager, you loved Voyager growing up. Yeah. Have you watched every episode like Kevin has? Every episode of Voyager, not of all the other series. <laughs> of Star Trek, though? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> so I've seen every episode yeah. of Voyager. I've probably watched the series like seven or eight times because sometimes I'll just restart and watch it throughout a year. Um, but yeah, I've seen probably like a dozen or so episodes of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, uh, most of the original series now. Um, and then I've been I'm actually behind on, uh, on Discovery. Discovery. Uh, I got to get caught up. I'm like four episodes behind, but. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I still got a lot. So it's it's exciting for me because a lot of this is going to be new. And I know Kevin knows a lot about Star Trek already, having seen them all, you know, in the past. So we'll yeah. have hopefully a lot to talk about. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, can you break down the structure of the show? So, you know, from the start, you guys introduce, your, introduce yourselves. How's the structure going to go for this new show? So, yeah, we'll introduce ourselves and the episode that we watched for the week. Um, we're going to recap it pretty quickly and then that's after that is where all of our analysis our opinions everything we think of the episode and how it relates to star trek in general and to modern day life and what the moral of the story was and uh how that moral holds up for better or for worse yeah uh morals is a big part of star trek that was big that was gene roddenberry's thing is he wanted to show a utopia uh from, what about Gene Roddenberry? Do you think carries through to the uh, current seasons? I think that the uh, the original Star Trek series still lives on in some form with Discovery to this day, with just the the seriousness that the characters are like the actors play the characters, but the whimsy behind it. There's often that like campy Star Trek joke at the end of an episode that still that still exists from time to time. Um, exploring strange new worlds i'm excited for that one by the way um the, it, just the idyllic future of humanity still lives to some extent in star trek to this day and i love 
the idea of tracking that throughout Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, do you think Gene Roddenberry's future can happen? I think so. I think what he does, I mean, it's it's a stark contrast when you look at like Star Trek versus Star Wars. And I love his Star Trek perspective because it is a hopeful future for humanity. It's what we could be if we lean to our positive side. And then Star Wars is like the just constant war and death that we would see if we go for our, our darker side and try to dominate each other still. Um, but yeah, it's always <laughs> in every episode, he, he highlights the positives in humanity and how if we just embrace our, our good nature and, you know, help, help each other and, you know, whatever, whatever the moral of the episode is, um, you know, we can reach a, a level of enlightenment and a, a future where we're, you know, able to work with other races and things like that. So I like it. And, and in every episode or every series and season, he's uh, more or less confronting a modern issue in our time or their time when they're making the show and just through the lens of Star Trek. So I love to see that, you know, when it comes to race or gender or, or whatever the topic is, uh, they, they address it, you know, under the veil of a sci-fi show and they bring it to light a little bit. Uh, Let's say that uh, I could pull a lot of strings and get you guys a couple guest to visit on your guys' show. Who would you want to most talk to from the Star Trek world? Kevin, you, you start us off. Robert Picardo, Robert Picardo, and Robert Picardo. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> Amen. If he's like, you know what, guys, do you guys mind recording at my house? I am in that fucking car so fast. <laughs> I'm heading down to LA, man, <laughs> wherever he's at. Yeah. Uh, Rene Abergenois, I believe is how you say his name. He played Odo in Deep Space oh, Nine, man. would be a great one, but he passed away last year, yeah. unfortunately. Um, that, was a, that was a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bob Picardo. And Jonathan Frakes. I'd love to t- chat with him too. Oh, LeVar Burton. That was the other one. Sorry, Ooh. LeVar Burton. That's a good one too. Yeah. Our future Jeopardy host. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Odo, God, that he, okay, so you, I don't know if you guys remember the show called Boston, uh, Boston Legal. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yeah. He was on Boston Legal and that's where I fell in love with him. And then I was like, oh, he's on Star Trek yeah. <laughs> with Shatner. I mean, like, it's not the same Star Trek, but. I, I was like, oh man, this guy's great. <laughs> when I see him, the first place that I saw him that I recognized him was actually the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. He was the... Uh, He's the priest. The priest, the yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then I saw him in, in Deep Space Nine. I was like, wait a minute, I recognize that guy. That's so cool. But <laughs> obviously he'd been uh, doing that for a long time already. Yeah, yeah. Funny when you're like, oh, wait a minute, you're a Star Trek guy. Um, Jonathan Frakes, I think, is a really good choice there. John, why would you want to talk to him? Well, so he's a great character, but the fact that he's directing so much in Star Trek now, too, and yeah. he was directing back during uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, it, he's just got to have so much insight. I think he's, you know, like Gene Roddenberry, now he has so much influence in the Star Trek world, I believe. So it'd be cool to just hear stories. I'm sure he has so many stories about being on set and everything. Yeah, that that would be fascinating. And then with Robert Picardo, um, or Bobby Picardo, like I'm going to call him when I can uh he does so much work nowadays with with the, the i think it's called the ronberry foundation i think it is and they're all about you know hopeful futures and you know space exploration and stuff like that he's actually on the board for them would you want to talk to ricardo about how he sees the future and how we can get there yeah that's the entire reason i think i would want to talk yeah. to bob Picardo is to to get his perspective on the future and if roddenberry's version of the future is possible 
um, just following him on Twitter. He's very outspoken on Twitter. Uh, just knowing his his viewpoints on things, I, I'd be very interested in asking him about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, his stories from Set, of course, would be great. But uh, yeah, he's one of them that's like really embraced the utopia aspect and is, is trying his best at reaching it, you know. And so I think that would be the thing I would want to talk to him uh, about the most. Um, okay, so we have a we have the series. It's going to be starting up in two weeks, guys. You're going to be hearing Trek Freaks, but you're going to get a sample of it right now. We're going to do a few minutes of it now so you guys can check it out. And this will be for the pilot episode of Star Trek, which is a very interesting episode. Uh, before we get into this uh, clip from your guys' show coming up, um, no Shatner in this one, correct? Correct. So it's interesting, this episode that we call the pilot actually didn't air back when it was made. It got rejected by by uh, NBC. And later they cut it up and they used it in The Menagerie, another two-part episode. Uh, it didn't air. I think I had it on my notes. It didn't air until 88 uh, on TV. <laughs> 88, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I watched it first on Netflix and realized it was, it was uh, you know, labeled as episode one. And then I look at Paramount Plus and it's labeled as episode zero. So I realized because it had to get, you know, shoehorned in later on. So uh, I'm definitely going to keep it in my notes as episode zero of season one. Uh, fo- fo- you know, following Paramount and their structure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's really interesting. Um, okay, so uh, we have a clip now from Trek Freaks. We hope you guys enjoy. Thank you guys for joining us this week. We appreciate it. Uh, shout out to our patrons, Kevin, Marco, Sonny, Fly Pirate, and Scott. I don't know a whole lot of other sci-fi from that time period, from the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, when I first started watching it, I hadn't seen this episode in about probably 15 years until I just watched it last night. And I didn't remember all of the, the, the beats of it, but I could see how it was sort of a, a misdirect. Like at the beginning, when Pike gets taken prisoner, you kind of figure, Oh, it's just like you were saying, they kind of want to just take him for slaves and, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a good misdirect, and I don't know if that was too common back in t- television or sci-fi in the mid '60s, mm-hmm. um, of having a villain that isn't just a straight-up, you know, evil villain, but rather trying to do something for the betterment of their species, while taking into consideration the effects that it could have on humans and any other species that they capture. Like they want to do it locally to try to limit the the impact that their experiments and the betterment that stuff that they're doing for their own betterment has on other cultures. I I thought that was really cool. And that really speaks to the heart of what I think Gene Roddenberry wants out of Star Trek is trying to limit misunderstandings or try to, for people to try to get to know each other better for people to put general misgivings aside for a minute to try to understand and empathize with, with people and civilizations, which is the entire premise of Star Trek, I think. Yeah, exactly. It opens you up to a lot more, like a broader perspective. Like you, you know, you have to, in any relationship, you have to try to see things from the other people's perspective to understand what they're, where they're coming from and what their intentions are. Yeah. With all that fancy, good future stuff being talked about, there was one point early on, pretty early on in the episode, when 
I think you already know what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say. There's the the young woman, the yeoman that uh, okay. stumbles into Pike, mm-hmm. and after their brief interaction, Pike turns around to Number One and says, "I just can't get used to women on the bridge." <laughs> She's replacing your former yeoman, sir. Now she does a good job, all right. It's just that I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. No offense, Lieutenant. You're different, of course. Which, obviously, it's a relic of the 60s, I th- would like to think, at least. Um, and then there's this slight awkward look from number one, who just happens to be a woman on the bridge. Yeah. And he just follows up with, no offense, Lieutenant, you're different, of course. Yeah. Which did not <laughs> age well. Yeah. So, I, I, I agree to some extent, but I also I beg to differ because I think, rather than that being an insult to, to gender or a negative thing, I think they were just teeing it up. They were bringing to light the conflict that through the series they were hoping to really delve into more, but the crew changed dramatically after that. So we see it later with Ahura that there's more gender stereotypes being broken. Uh, but yeah, I think that was probably a setup to be implement or to be you know worked through more later. I'd like to think that you're right. I really would. And I hope that that's what they were going for with that. Um, like you said, yeah, I, I, the, they had Uhura and women weren't objects in that show as much after that first pilot. Um, it still happened quite yeah. a bit, though. And I think in the pilot, they might this might even be one of the reasons why they didn't care for it so much. But I think just based on so much of what we see in this episode, their main topic that they're trying to confront was gender stereotypes when we see right away in episode two that changes to be more so about uh i think they also do have episodes about gender stereotypes but more so about uh, race relations so i think that kind of was a a big set like a big change they wanted to make in in redoing the pilot that's probably true i don't see that as being so much a an NBC directive as I do a Gene Roddenberry thing though. So you're probably right. They were probably teeing that up, but still having that episode on its own with no other context for (laughs) that conversation (laughs) that did not sit well, that didn't age well. Thank you for joining us on the Geek Freaks podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Geek Freaks Pod. We're also on Facebook, Instagram. You can email us. We have our Patreon and a store. All those links are in the description. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week.